Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Here's our host and Squad Locker CEO, Gary Goldberg. Welcome again to another episode of On The Whistle. Uh, Today, we're going to take a little trip down to the Mid-Atlantic. We're going to go down to Washington, D.C. in the Maryland area and talk to a gentleman by the name of Michael Warden. Did I pronounce that, Mike, correctly? That worked. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Mike founded an organization called PPA, Player Progression Academy, which has become, um, if not the largest, one of the largest uh, youth sports organizations in the greater D.C. Maryland area. Uh, their mission is to be the most impactful and respected youth sports academy in their community. And if they haven't already gotten there, they're off to a tremendous start. Um, Mike grew up in that area, uh, had a pretty decorated high school career as a soccer player, um, won the first division title at his high school in 30 years as a senior, as a senior captain. From there, he went to the American University um, and, again, had a really decorated career as a performing soccer player, varsity soccer player, and throughout both high school and college um, had very high honor roll and academic achievement. So here's a guy who's firing on all cylinders. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the show, and, and thanks for giving us some of your time. Thanks for having me on, Gary. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So just peeling back a little bit, I'd love to know, like, where where did you find the love of soccer and, and how did you get good at it? At what age? Well, let's see here. I, um, I grew up in Tacoma Park, a suburb outside of D.C. And um, in my neighborhood, we had a group of kids that were from Central America. And that's where I learned how to play soccer, really. That was... When I was about five or six, I got into playing soccer in my neighbor's front yard. And we would just play small pickup games, and we had a nice little gang of kids. Um, and that's kind of where I had the seed planted of, um, you know, sports. We played soccer. We played basketball. We played capture the flag. Um, and it was a nice, diverse group. I was probably on the younger end of things, which looking back was probably a, a good thing for me. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that's where, that's where things got started. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the point already about your neighbors were from Central America. So do you think this, uh, having a diverse neighborhood improved the likelihood that you were going to be a better soccer player? Well, I think it, 
increase the likelihood that I would get exposed to soccer in particular. Like when I was growing up, it wasn't that long ago. We're talking mid nineties, late nineties. But even back then, like the MLS didn't start until 98, I think 96, maybe. So there wasn't even a professional soccer league, really. Um, Like watching overseas games wasn't really a thing yet. Uh, Right now, like you can't not turn on the TV and see a premier league game. Um, And video games is another thing that exposes kids to, to soccer a lot. FIFA is I think the most popular sports video game. And that wasn't around when I was a kid. So I think um, back when I was a kid, soccer wasn't as mainstream as it is today. But uh, obviously down in Central and South America, that's a core part of that, those cultures. So I think having those kids that, you know, grew up playing soccer, they, they kind of um, were the ones that exposed me to, to that sport. Yeah, it's interesting. So you go – from growing up into high school and college, and I'm just curious, thinking about those times, um, and this show being focused on mentors, coaches, teachers, and adults who help young people find their path to you know, their ultimate joy in life or figuring out that path on their own to their full potential. Were there coaches along the way that made an impact in your journey? Absolutely. I don't think there's really anyone that makes it very far without having mentors particularly in sports when you're a kid. Um, I had all types of coaches. I mean, early on, my coaches were my, my friends' parents, and they were great for what they brought to the table. Um, and some of those coaches I'm still in touch with. Uh, probably my most pivotal coach was my club soccer coach. And he was just a class act. He, he was coaching college and was doing travel soccer as part of his uh, – coaching profession and he was just a great coach he taught us how to how to be class acts while we played I mean we played at a high level and he was just a great coach yeah when you say he taught you how to be a class act what does that look like from a coach's perspective and from an athlete's perspective what is that relationship like yeah well I can remember playing you know when you get to these higher levels of youth sports it's like you go to these tournaments and the parents are so invested psychologically in watching these games. Um, and, you know, you hear about the fights and stuff from the parents. And um, our coach was very big on on just being steady. Like, we played hard, but at the end of the day, like, he was big on shaking hands after the game. Um, and we played for a... I played for a team from Baltimore and Baltimore is particularly, uh, it has a reputation for kind of being blue collar, but also very, um, I would say competitive. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we had parents and we played against teams that, um, things would get very intense. And so I think he just kind of saw that and, uh, made sure that we were being mindful as we were, you know, competing, competing mindfully, I would say. Yeah. And did you, uh, you know, as a up and coming athlete, was that something that was difficult for you or did that come more naturally finding that balance and not overreacting or. You know? Yeah. For me personally, it, it actually, I think, um, goes along well with my personality. I do have a, a pretty strong competitive, uh, bug, but 
I'm also, um, and, I, and I think I get this from my father, is, is pretty even keeled. So the way that he coached resonated really well with me in terms of, you know, you play to win, but but you got to be respectful at the same time. And, and I think you can kind of see that in various professional athletes. There's various personas out there. Um, you know, some people are very, some of the professional athletes are very flamboyant and others, uh, like if you saw the masters, this past weekend, yeah, I did. there was the caddy of the, of the guy. And at the end, she kind of took his hat off to give uh, respects to the, to the course. So it was, you know, that kind of thing is like resonates well with me. And yeah. Yeah. That was a magical moment. And also uh, the humility of walking around the airports with his green master's jacket just slung over his shoulder. That was amazing. As if it was just nothing, no big deal. Right where you know that. some of the other guys were flying private the next day or whatever, and he's just cruising around, wants to go yeah. home. Yeah. So that picture of him sitting in the airport at 7 a.m. or whatever, that was that was amazing. Yeah, it is an amazing time. So tell me a little bit, you know, before we get into PPA, and we want to dig into that because uh, just the success you've had down in your area and unpacking that for other people who uh, are running youth sports organizations across the country. And, you know, we'd love to share with our audience some of, you know, the things that you've that have worked for you and some of the things that haven't worked for you. But just take a quick jaunt into uh, American University. So you obviously uh, made the team there. Was transitioning to college soccer a, a big leap for you? Yes. How so? Um, so when you go from high school soccer, travel soccer, you're playing, you know, a couple of times a week and then you jump into college and all of a sudden it's every day and it's intense. The pressure around college soccer is a lot different than it is in high school and club. Uh, when you go to college in division one, it's kind of the first time that the coach is um, accountable to the results of these games. And so like I found the attitudes of the coaching to be a lot different than the attitudes that I was used to playing high school and club. Like in high school, the coach had been coaching there for 20 years. Like if he didn't win the championship, you know, it was okay. When we got to college, you could feel the pressure from the coaching staff. And so they were very motivated to try to get us to win. Um, so I think the whole vibe of playing in college was different than what I had experienced before. Um, and it was a lot more intense. The commitment level was a lot higher. I mean, when I, when you start playing soccer in particular, because it's a fall sport. So you graduate high school in let's say May preseason soccer will start in August. So you basically have two months. And you go from being like a senior, like kind of not really caring about class anymore because like you're already in college and you're hanging out with your friends in the summer. And then all of a sudden you report to the first day of preseason. And it's like, now you're playing with people that look like adults. <laughs> you know, when you're 18, a 20 year old looks big and old and you start going two, two days, uh, twice a day, nonstop for about two or two weeks. And it's intense. It's like working out, it's running, it's training. 
and it's talking about like the schedule coming up and how hard and who the big teams are. Um, so the intensity level gets ramped up big time when you get to college and then you get to the off season, which in soccer is the fall, sorry, the spring, um, the spring, although it starts in January, off season starts in January. And for us, we were going every day, Monday, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. So you got to do that and then go to class after that. Yeah, it's a and big 7 a.m. Yeah, 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. looks like the first hour you're either meeting on the track or you're meeting in the workout room, lifting or some combination of that. And then you go and train and then you get breakfast and then you try to go to class. So um, the commitment level was much higher once you get to college. At least it was for me. Our uh, Cracker Jack research team uh, found a gem, an absolute internet gem. Uh, Max, bring that up, would you? Just sharing something here with you. Uh, oh, man. This is scaring me. Yeah, you should be scared. Let's just go ahead and play that. Double overtime. Someone was able to slip me through, and I tucked it away, and it was pretty special. He gets it up to Warden. Warden all by himself. Shoots. It's a big American University wins the game. That was a big game. So, how do you, when you see a video like that, what do you, uh, you know, looking back, what, what goes through your head? Do you look at that fondly, like it, it's a it's a cool thing and you treasure it? Absolutely. I would I mean, treasure that. Hard, but uh, but I loved it. I mean, yeah, playing in college is awesome. It's a different experience than I think a normal, you know, a lot of my friends went to college and didn't play sports. Because half your life is dedicated to this thing of training and, and playing games. But, uh, you know, when you're in it, it's tough. It's like doing a marathon, right? When you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, what, what am I doing this for? And then when you're done, you're like, that was the best time I ever had. Right. That's that's the payoff. So you graduated in, uh, I think, 2011, if I remember correctly. And... Or, or a little bit before that. And I read somewhere or saw in one of your videos, I think I saw it in one of your videos that in 2011, you know, the economy was difficult. We're coming out of a recession and, you know, finding that easy choice, you know, layup employment opportunity just didn't fall into your lap. Yeah. And so as a result, you're like, well, what can I do? What can we do? You, you ask your friends, like, what are we good at? And obviously you went back to what you're comfortable with, which is playing soccer. And you're like, hey, I can just be a good coach. I know enough about coaching. I can help accelerate some of these young people who want to be better players. And you effectively start at the beginning PPA. <clears throat> and so, you know, tell us about the beginning of that. And, yeah. and also, like, I think the interesting thing in that TED Talk that's out there. And if you guys are interested in it, I think it's, um, I have to find the title of the Ted talk, but, uh, it's out there. If you just link out to it. Yeah. We'll link out. Thank you, Max, for jumping in and assisting our, uh, our audience that way. But, um, the cool thing was how little resources you had, right? You started PPA five guys in a two bedroom apartment. Your office was your futon, which was, where you guys hung out. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the the spark that started it. Yeah. I would say um, you're, the way you describe that is, 
is pretty accurate, but not exactly accurate. When I graduated, it was, it was 2011, and we were three years off of the financial bust. So it was a difficult time for graduating, um, for graduating from college, at least in terms of job prospects. So at that moment, it wasn't necessarily like, okay, I don't have a job, so I'm going to go coach soccer. My initial thinking was, all right, I got to go, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to continue going to school. If the, if the economy's not good now. Um, and my plan was to, to do law school. And so what I decided after I graduated was, well, let me take a year off. I'll take a year to kind of hang out with my buddies, study the LSATs, and then I'll take and travel. And then I'll take the LSATs the following year. And then, so I'll have a year off then go to law school, then it'll be three years. And then by then the economy will be better and I'll have my, uh, my law degree and I'll be ready to go. Um, so then over that summer, after I graduated and I had this plan, I said, well, I'll keep coaching as a thing. This is a fun thing that I started doing while I was in college and some of my other buddies were also doing. So we kind of were all doing it together. So I think the reason why that might be important to this story is, I didn't set about building a company. Um, and so, you know, when you reference, like I didn't have a lot of resources early on, that's true. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't necessarily putting together a master plan of creating, a, you know, a big organization. At that point, my plan was like, okay, well, I'm making a couple bucks coaching some teams. How can I make a little bit more? Well, if I do some private training on the side, I can make a little bit more money. And then it kind of snowballed into, well, I'm doing some private training sessions. My friends are doing some. I got to go to, I got a plan. I got a trip that I've planned. Like, can my buddy cover my session while I'm gone? And then, you know, once we started figuring out that if we kind of work together here, we could um, do a lot better. I think that kind of spawned some thinking into, well, maybe we can, go down this track and push us a little bit harder. Um, so people ask me a lot, how did I start? And I think in general, my answer is that it kind of snowballed uh, serendipitously. It wasn't necessarily a classic, put a business plan together and then raise money and then um, execute. You know, I've grown a bunch of businesses and they always have these funny inflection points where they start off as ideas, ideas become some sort of a form of reality. And then you get this point of traction where, you know, you can feel it accelerating and then you start to gather the resources around it. Sure. But you've got some pretty lofty stuff on your website. So I'd love to know the origin of some of the stuff. So um, what we try, and this is a quote from your website, what we try to do every day is make our players into better athletes and better people. And then there's uh, a similar quote, developing players between the lines and outside them, right? Which one, I, th I think it's a great, it's a great quote, like between the lines and outside them. Both of those quotes talk about um, character building mm -hmm. in coordination with athletics, right? So, yeah, we want you to be better at this game. We want to improve your skills, your athleticism, your endurance, whatever that is, right? 
But in addition to that, we want to build your character. We want you to, quote, be better people, and we want to improve your life outside the lines. So that's a theme in your TED Talk. That's a theme on your website. What's the origin of that uh, interest? And do you think it's working for your organization? How important is it for PPA to have that? Well, I would say developing our athletes as people is central to our approach in how we design our programming, how we um, train our coaching staff, um, how we measure our results. Um, how exactly that came about? Was there an inflection point where, you know, we consciously decided this is where we're going to go for it. I don't know if I can necessarily pinpoint that moment. Um, I can speak to maybe how that might've evolved. Um, when we started to really build up, we started by targeting these groups of players that weren't quite at the level of, they, maybe they weren't ready for travel sports yet, um, but they wanted something a little bit more than playing traditional rec programs where there was a parent who kind of tossed the ball out and said, go play. And so with those types of players, um, we did really want to focus on, number one, building the the passion for the sport for these kids, because with the passion, I think all the other great things that you get from sports, um, that follows the passion. Um, and then the other thing was, like you had mentioned, was the character development piece of it. Um, and that was just something that I think naturally I was doing early on. And then I think because the, it was working for me well, talking about the life lessons of, you know, resiliency and things like that. Um, it just kind of became embedded in the way we did things. Um, and now we've codified a lot of those kinds of ideas in the way we do it because we're an organization and we have lots of people involved. Um, but I think the other thing that we found was as we grew out of that more niche segment of these kids that were in between that we found that those same topics of building character resonated with every type of kid, whether it be the, the, the kid who's just starting out and just learning the sport or the kid who's been playing forever. Um, and as you well know, and a lot of people you bring on those character development things in many ways are the most important pieces of what sports can bring for a, you know, for a kid. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You, you say you're a bigger organization now with a lot of people. How many players does PPA typically register in a non-COVID related year, right? <laughs> Obviously yeah. you guys, like all youth sports, unfortunately yeah. had a, you know, at a time where you had to, to kind of struggle through that. But uh, like yeah. how many, how many coaches, what's your normal staff look like? How big does this program get? Yeah. Well, COVID did put a little of a damper on our momentum, but um, we've actually just started our spring season again. We're actually back now to pre COVID levels. That's great. Which is exciting. 
Although it also comes with a lot of logistical challenges because we're still dealing with COVID. Um, but this season will will have roughly 2,000, 2,100 players participating in our programs. And then with that, we're looking at 80 to 100 staff members to pull off all those programming. It's a lot of kids. It's a lot of people. Um, yeah. On a, on a similar topic, but uh, kind of derivative, um, you've got some really interesting girls programs. And I'd love to just talk a little bit about gender, gender equality, and how do you achieve that in your program, particularly for other people who are out there who want to make sure that they're gender balanced in a way that's inclusive. There's a yeah. really neat video on the PPA website. And by the way, if you're interested in learning more about it, it's ppateam.com, ppateam.com. And um, you can go there and, and see everything from there elementary age kids all the way up to, you know, the elite travel and everything in between hoops, soccer camps. It's, it's really, it's an impressive organization, but there's this wonderful little video that um, our researcher Amelia found. And it's um, there's some moms and some girls playing basketball. And there's a quote from a girl, a young girl who's playing. And she says in her own voice, it's okay to be a female and to be aggressive, to get knocked down and to get back up, right? Now I have a daughter and she's now in college, but I love the spirit of that young girl. And I know the value of her understanding her own self-worth and her voice. <clears throat> and so that's a huge asset for young women who, again, are on that progress path towards understanding what their life's gonna be about and how to fulfill their own potential. So you're not a girl, you're a guy, you played boys soccer, you were on the men's soccer team at American University, right? Yet you have a gender balanced program. So one, how'd you establish it being a guy? Yeah. And how do you maintain the sensitivity around the equality piece and doing the right thing for both your program and your community? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. That's what we do here. <laughs> um, the short answer, the easy answer is that my sister is involved in the program. She's uh, the head of the premier of our travel soccer program. Um, and so she's set a lot of the precedent for a lot of the things that you've talked about that you, you hit on. Um, the longer answer is, well, I'll say my sister also played at a very high level. She actually played, she made it all the way to the, pro teams to whatever the league was called at that point. I think the acronym has changed since. And then she tore ACL and, and that was my opportunity to recruit her to start <laughs> girls programming for us. That's funny. So, so I guess just, but, to, uh, just to capsulate it though. So having a strong leader is part of the equation, right? So that's part yeah, of the no answer to the equation, have a strong leader who believes in that it benefits that she, her gender is female so that she can do that work. Right. And I think her being exposed to high level women's sports allowed her to recognize that like the same things that resonate with competitive boys resonate with competitive girls. So uh, she was very um, aggressive about making sure that our girls program was up to par. <laughs> but 
I would say the longer answer is, and I know you wanted to hit on, on gender and the difference between boys and girls, but uh, like one of the things that our programming or our organization in general is very focused on is the player experience. So like the weird thing about running a youth sports organization is like, it's a business and in any business you have to be um, concerned and focused on what the customer wants. But when it comes to youth sports, you have the parents, which are the customer, but you have the kids who get the service. So it's kind of like private schools where there's these kind of weirdly aligned incentives. The parents sometimes want something that doesn't necessarily align with what's in the best interest of the kid. So like I brought up the private school thing. This might be a good example of like private schools are funky because parents can spend a lot of money sending their kids to private schools with the expectation that, well, if I'm paying this premium, I expect some results, whether it be my kid go to college or what have you. So if I'm a teacher at a private school and the kid doesn't do so well and I want to give him a C and in back of my head, I know that this might lead to an email from the customer, the parent who says, well, I, I signed up. And so that makes things that makes those institutions, I think a little weird. And the same challenges happen when you're running a sports club, you have the parenting of the kid. Sometimes those perspectives are the same. Sometimes they're not. So as a club, what we've done is, we've decided that our number one priority is the player experience. Like for me, it was, I would rather, I'd be more proud of our club if every player loved playing for PPA over every parent loved signing their kid up for PPA. For me, the player experience was more important. Not to say we ignore parents, we definitely take them into account, but the parent was number, the player was number one for us. So when you start diving deeper into what makes a great player experience, it can get complicated. Like there are nuances to player experiences. There's differences between younger kids and older kids. There's differences between higher level players and lower level players. And there are differences between boys and girls. Uh, But there are also a lot of universal things that we really kind of hone in on. Um, And one of them is, competition like being competitive resonates with almost any kid and i think is fundamental to what sports is so even like a kid who's just started playing sports he's five years old never touched a ball you can still teach them to want to win and it's not a it's not a bad thing to want to win wanting to win is a good thing because is the motivator to practice hard, to try to get better, all the good things that you need or you can get out of sports. So teaching kids to be competitive, I think, has been one of our like secret sauces. Like every kid you can teach to be competitive, even if they're not very strong, skillfully yet. You know, some of the most exciting games I've seen, like this is crazy, but like you watch like, six-year-old teams playing against each other. Sometimes those are the most dramatic games because those kids, they just like, if you teach them, if both teams really want to win, the parent, the coaches have gotten those 
kids bought in. It doesn't really matter how good they are. Like those games can be wild, even more wild than, you know, 18 year olds who are at, at the top of their food chain playing against each other. So competitiveness, I think it goes across all the spectrums, whether you're talking about younger kids, older kids, boys or girls. Um, another one of, of those kind of universal truths or principles of sport, I think is the team camaraderie stuff. That's another thing that we're really big on. Um, and between boys and girls, they both, like both of those ring so hard when it comes to what sports it gives them, um, the companionship. And in fact, I would say even girls are almost more into the companionship side of sports than boys are. Um, but certainly for both sides, that's huge is being able to use sports to, uh, create companionship or, or provide companionship for these teach companionship for these kids. You know, like I think about when I was playing, you, you know, you brought up my, my college days and like do the memories of watching the highlights, like do those ring a bell for me? They do. But if I'm just spending time by myself, thinking about my college career as an athlete, like the first memories I have are, the days I had in the locker room with, with my teammates, like the things I did with my teammates are the things that I remember most. And like, I think it's just a reflection of what sports can bring to anybody. Um, so just to kind of bring this full circle, like what, how did we, how did we build our girls program? Like we focused on the universal principles of sport and tried to make them like, it didn't matter what age, what level, what gender we stuck to like, we want them to learn to want to win. We want them to be competitive because those are the things that you need to teach them to want to get better, um, to teach them to try hard, those kinds of things. Um, team camaraderie was a big thing that we push across every program because companionship is so valuable when it comes to sports. Um, and I think that's a big reason why like a lot of our programming has worked because like some of the, I would say more old fashioned clubs, like are maybe a little bit more remiss to like pushing competitiveness to girls or pushing even competitiveness to lower level players. Interesting. Yeah. Mike, um, for the, people out there that are running their own programs and, and managing YSOs, youth sports organizations and building programs and aspire to have one as large and su as successful as you, it sounds to me in listening to the Ted talk. And I know before the show, when we were connecting and just meeting for the first time, you said, Oh, was, you know, I was younger then and it was a little cringeworthy just watching that. And I, and I respect looking backwards in time. It can be a little cringeworthy, but you talk about something that's kind of profound and I think universal in any entrepreneur or any agent of change. And that is the following. And I felt it in my business too at Squad Locker, you know, and, and working hard to build that is as things get more successful, it doesn't necessarily mean that you continue to get happier. Right? No doubt. And, yeah. and when you said in your youth, in your young age, in that TED Talk, well, the more successful I got, that meant the more coaches I had and the more people I was responsible for. And while 
you think you're the scoreboard's ringing a higher score, it can actually feel like a lot of pressure and a lot of complexity. Mm-hmm. In which you then go on to share that you started using meditation as a way to enhance your ability to think more accurately and more focused about your own personal performance and then connecting performance with situational awareness. And all of a sudden it starts to come together for you in a better way. But yeah, I, I mean, I tell you just from a personal sharing perspective, that piece really resonated with me. And I think you're years ahead of, of where you may, I give you a lot of credit for that is what I'm trying to say, because I'm 50, I'm 51 and I don't think I figured out what you figured out in that TED Talk, or at least you became aware of in that TED Talk till my late 40s, in, in literally yeah. my late 40s. And now my kids are in high school, they're headed off to college. And that's when the time when I started to realize, well, if you just let go a little and trust yeah. things a little bit, little, little more, and stay laser focused on what it is you believe in and what you think you're working on, yeah, some of that anxiety and some of that pressure can and fall away, right? No doubt. Yeah, I mean, when I look back on that, it is true that, you know, in some ways I, I kind of have to remind myself of uh, the things that I was preaching. I mean, I still do meditation a lot and it does continue to help me. Um, I think another thing that maybe now looking back was as things changed pretty quickly for me, the skill set that I had developed to get me to where I was when I was giving that TED Talk was not the same skill sets that necessarily needed to deal with that level of where I was at. So yeah, meditation is helpful to kind of deal with um, a growing enterprise, but also improving your management skills is another area <laughs> that also helped. Huge capability. Yeah. Learning how to delegate and manage and create clear expectations and clear lines of communication in any organization helps it grow. Yeah. And, and decentralize. So, you know, when I, like I said, when I started, it was like about doing more sessions and my first three or four years, I became a really good coach. Nice. You know, that's probably one of my strongest suits. Um, but when you're dealing with an organization with multiple people being a good youth coach, it actually is a little bit relevant, but there's definitely things that I, I had some, uh, I had a lot of learning to do and I still do. I mean, every time things change, you got to learn. Talk about some of the other pain points uh, that people who are also building their youth sports organization that you went through, even from like a technology standpoint, right? How did you yeah. transition like going from like, you know, signing up 10 kids to signing up 2000 kids and like some of those real interesting growth plateaus? How did you manage those? Yeah. I mean, technology, well, the, the technology landscape has changed a lot since Steve and I started because now there are these platforms that you can subscribe to, to deal with a lot of logistical things. Um, registration used to be a big house. I mean, one of the reasons why youth force in general has, has grown in the last 20 years, the way it has is logistically, like you can do things online now. Like when I was growing up, like sign up for rec, like you mail in your registration form. So now everything is obviously on the computer. Um, so when I was starting, there wasn't really great technology to manage registrations and payments. And we kind of pieced together like Google Docs and and PayPal uh, reports and things like that to, to kind of run operations. 
Um, and, but now there's tons of things to, to deal with, with those, uh, those challenges. Um, we actually, because they weren't available when I started, we actually started building out our own platforms, which has been really helpful. Um, not only in the fact that we have our own kind of registration system, which gives us some uh, advantages because we can tailor that registration to what we actually need, uh, but also gave me a lot of experience dealing with IT people and coding. And, and that's a world that like you pretty much have to be involved with if you're planning on building a business from this day on. Um, another good example is, is you guys, we started working with squad locker. Like you guys do a platform that used to require uh, like dealing with, uh, you know, brick and mortar retailers. And, and there was a lot of pain points dealing with brick and mortar retailers. And now squad locker comes in and it just cleans up a lot of the logistical challenges of uh, ordering, ordering a lot of jerseys and jerseys are really important to running good programs. It's, it's key to like our marketing. Um, so I think the landscape has evolved uh, a lot since when I started, like even when I started phones weren't as just like so standard as they are now. Like if you're going to run registration, you got to be able to have the schedule on someone's phone. And like, that wasn't the case when I started. So uh, I think the best, the best thing I can say is like, it's going to continue to change. I mean, I think you just got to be on top of it. Like the solutions are out there. Tech, the technology solutions are out there, but I think being able to adapt and, and just being current with the times is, is really important these days because technology changes so fast. Mike, uh, a couple topics that I want to cover before we wrap up. Uh, one is, and this is kind of an open-ended question, but what do you hope for, for PPA? I mean, you're at 2,000 players. You're at over 100 in staff. you got boys and girls soccer and hoop. Do you want – is this something that you want to go national with? Do you want 50,000 yeah. kids for PPA? Or are you going to have to meditate eight hours a day if you get to that point? You know, I would say um, our focus right now is to really build as high a quality a club as we can in our region. Like – you noted that our, our mission is to be the most respected and impactful um, club in the community. And one of the things I've learned about running the sports, you know, doing this youth sports thing in our area is that there are these economies of scale and, and you can actually build quality as you get bigger because of a lot of the network effects of like, um, you know, if your friends are playing, then the game is more fun. Like if I have a lot more teams that compete against each other, I can create more parity, which makes the games more competitive, which makes the games more fun. So as you get bigger in some ways, quality tends to get better. Um, but as you get bigger, the logistics gets more challenging. And so kind of managing growth while also keeping up with the logistical challenges is, um, is where is where we're focusing right now. We haven't quite reached, I think, our our limit of like we still don't have a full scale um, like high school program. We have a few teams, but not enough to really make I think the programs as good as they could be. Um, and so I think what we're trying to do is just manage our growth to improve the quality, so that ultimately we can really just be proud of the club we have in our, uh, in our region. Um, 
and maximize quality. I think that's really our focus is to, is to really cr- try to create the best club. I think we're going to need to continue to grow, but uh, at this point, that's where that's where all of our eyes are set. We're not really looking to franchise or go outside DC until we've kind of mission accomplished in DC. I know you said to me earlier that you had listened to a few of our, our other episodes, so you know my outro question that I ask all my guests. You probably already thought about your answer, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You've played in a lot of games, you've coached a lot of games, and now you run one of the largest programs in your area. What do you think you've gained more from, the wins or the losses, Mike? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I've listened to some of your episodes, but I've not, I haven't gotten to the end. Well, there so, you go. That's a surprise question. I've listened to different ones. Um, shoot me the question one more time. Yeah, so having played in a lot of games and coached a lot of games, what did you gain more from, the wins or the losses? <laughs> Well, does anyone say wins? Uh, yeah. Uh, really? Coach Jamie Rice, Babson D3 hockey coach, one of the most winning hockey coaches in Division Three, and just during COVID went undefeated but didn't get to a national championship because of the COVID, you know, complexity, uh, said absolutely the wins, undoubtedly yeah. the wins. And he said to me, and he's an – by the way, it's, it's 90-10. 90 yeah. losses, 10 yeah. wins. But he he's so – fixated in the city because because like gary you need to have them <laughs> right yeah he said i yeah. just when you when you don't have them you just need them back to your yeah. pressure about being in college and wanting to win yeah right so they fuel him yeah yeah i feel like uh the right answer you know if i was taking a coaching course the right answer is losses mm-hmm. but you know you're gonna ask me honestly well that's I what we're looking you, for we're looking yeah, for the truth you know, the candid well the candid answer is i think both I mean, honestly, I can't say one or the other. You learn different things from wins and you learn different things from losses. I agree with the sentiment, like, if you learn the most from losses, well, then your goal should be to always lose. And obviously, that's not the goal. Winning is definitely part of the equation. You learn from winning because, you know, if you're successful, well, then you know what went into being successful. So then you can try to repeat that. But similarly, when you lose, you learn. Um, When you lose, I think it's easier to say, well, I learned something, so that's kind of my uh, my uh, half cup is half full approach. But um, but yeah, I think any situation you can learn wins and losses. They just give you different lessons. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Mike's program, it's ppateam.com. And we really just touched the surface today. But Mike, uh, I really appreciate you investing your time in the show and the work that you're doing down in the community. I know the community should be grateful for, you know, what you're giving the kids and the parents and your focus on quality and competition is uh, it's obviously a winning program because, you know, you haven't shrunk, you're growing and you're going further. So hats off to you. And uh, it's great to be with you today. Thanks, Gary. It was uh, it's a good time. Yeah. Good it's time fun. by all. On the Whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one-stop shop for customized team apparel, delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com.